The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Brian Sullivan, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show airs live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. It's 5 a.m. here at CNBC Global Headquarters, and here is your top five at five. We begin with stocks kicking off a new trading week deep in the red as the rate risk pushes Wall Street to its worst day of the year. Now, despite the Tuesday tumble, all is not lost. Why, one of our guests says the market has a pop coming up. Advice from Piper Sandler's Craig Johnson, you cannot afford to miss. And one year on, our weekly look at the war in Ukraine as it continues with a closer look at the upheaval in the global energy markets and what a second year of conflict could mean for you. Plus, bucking the big bank trends as one CEO sees a bump in their pay package. And then later on, yet another billion dollar buyback on the heels of record profits. But this time, it's not big oil and it's not big tech. It's Wednesday, however, February 22nd, 2023. You're watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. Good morning and welcome to Worldwide Exchange. I am Frank Holland. Let's kick off the hour with a look at the markets and U.S. stock futures. Right now, we're seeing a bit of a mixed picture. All morning, the futures have kind of vacillated between fractionally positive and fractionally negative. Right now, still a pretty much mixed picture. This comes after yesterday's major market meltdown with the Dow, the S&P, and the NASDAQ seeing their worst single-session losses since all the way back in December 15th with the Dow wiping out all of its gains so far this year. All 11 S&P 500 sectors, they closed lower on the day, as did 29 of the 30 Dow stocks. The lone winner, Walmart, erasing early losses despite issuing that cautious full-year guidance, just eking out a half a percentage point gain. You can see the moves right here. Kind of tricky all day here for Walmart. Kind of, again, similar to futures this morning, vacillating between the positive and the negative, just eking out that gain to end the day. On the other side of that retail coin was Home Depot, responsible for nearly 150 negative Dow points and showing possible signs that consumer demand it just may be falling off for those non-essential products. Checking the bond market right now, yields coming off a steep spike amid the selling inequities. The two, the five, and the 10-year all trading near their highest level since November this morning right now, we're seeing the 10-year at 3.951 right here. This is about 40 to 50 basis points higher than its year low back in mid-November. Uh, excuse me, mid-January. I'm kind of skipping ahead here. Still seeing that inverted yield curve right here. Something to continue to watch as we have these recession fears. We're also watching the energy market continuing its move to the downside. We're going to touch a lot more on this in the show later. Right now, we're seeing WTI crude at about 75 bucks a barrel, down a percent and a half this morning. We can see week-to-date, it's also down a percent and a half. Also watching crypto, we're looking at Bitcoin and Ether. Bitcoin falling back below that 25,000 mark. Right now down a percent and a half. Ether down a percent and a half as well. However, both of them making big run-ups year to date. Bitcoin up about 35, 40% year to date. Ether up more than 30% year to date. That has slowed in February along with stocks as we've seen selling off. All right, let's check the overnight action in Asia as well as the early trade over in Europe. Our Juliana Tattlebaum is standing by in our London newsroom. Good morning, Juliana. 
Hey, Frank, good morning. Well, that major market meltdown that you described for Wall Street yesterday has set quite a negative tone for trade around the globe. Overnight, we've got red across the board for Asian markets. The Shanghai Composite in mainland China dropping about uh, five, uh, 50 basis points or so. The Hang Seng in Hong Kong also dropping by about 0.5 percent. And the Nikkei 225 in Japan seeing outsized selling pulling back about 1.3 percent. The downbeat sentiment continues in Europe this morning. We've been open for uh, a couple of hours now, and we've got red across the board here as well. Uh, the Spanish market leading the losses down about 1.2 percent. FTSE 100 not far behind, down by about 1 percent as well. We did get some relatively upbeat data out of Germany this morning. The German business survey, the IFO survey, showed that morale has improved across German business in the latest survey, but recession fears do remain. Now, there is one bright spot I want to highlight for you in the auto sector this morning, and that is Stellantis. The automaker uh, posted full-year net profit that was up 26% to almost 17 billion euros as revenue surged 18% 18% to 180 billion euros. The carmaker also announced a 1.5 billion euro share buyback. And as you can see, shares reacting very well to this news. They were able to sell a very strong product mix and offer uh, up and see upside to pricing, which offset continued logistical and supply chain challenges. Frank, with that, we'll hand it back over to you. All right, Juliana, thank you very much. Let's also get a check on this morning's top corporate stories. Our Silvana Hanau is here with those. Good morning, Silvana. Hey, Frank, good Wednesday morning to you. Let's start with Citigroup because it's awarding its CEO, Jane Fraser, a $24.5 million pay package for 2022, making her the only major U.S. bank CEO to receive a bump in compensation for the year. In a filing late yesterday, Citi granted Fraser, who just completed her first full year as CEO, about $19 million in stock awards, a cash bonus of $3.4 million and about $1.5 million in salary. The Federal, the Federal Trade Commission reportedly will not challenge Amazon's $3.5 billion deal to buy one medical parent, One Life Health, clearing the way for it to close by the end of this week. In a statement, however, the FTC says it will continue to look at possible harms to competition created by this merger and concerns around Amazon controlling sensitive user health data. And consulting giant McKinsey plans to eliminate about 2,000 jobs in one of its biggest layoffs ever, ever. According to several reports, the move is expected to focus on support staff that do not have direct contact with clients, and executives are hoping the move will help preserve its partner compensation pool, Frank. Yeah, something to watch, this uh, trend of job reductions mm-hmm. going on in corporate America right now. We'll keep an eye Savannah on now. We'll see you later on the Sounds show. Good. All right, let's stick with the pre-market stock action and hit some big money movers. We've got to begin with shares of Palo Alto Networks. You can see they're rallying more than 8% after the cybersecurity company's second quarter results. They beat forecast and it raised its guidance for the year. Palo Alto has sharpened its focus on improving efficiency and amid the weakening economy. That includes reining in headcount, something the CEO talked about with Jim Cramer on Mad Money last night. We have scrutinized our gross margin. We've scrutinized our headcount. We scrutinized our processes to make sure that we run this business efficiently. What we've been able to do is we've been able to improve our operating margins by 440 basis points in the last 12 months. All right, moving on to the housing market and Toll Brothers, the luxury home builder reporting better than expected first quarter results, although it was not immune to the broader housing market pullback. The number of signed contracts dropped by half from a year ago. But Toll CEO says they've seen a recent pickup in demand and buyer confidence is on the upswing. Shares up more than 2% this morning. 
Finally, Lazy Boy, the furniture maker and retailer's third quarter earnings, they beat forecasts and sales got a slight boost as a result of higher prices. That helped to offset lower unit volume in the quarter due to supply chain issues. Shares are up more than 5% in the pre-market. All right, we come back here on WEX. Jim Cramer lays out what needs to happen in the stock market for all that selling to stop. We'll see if the top market technician, Craig Johnson, agrees. Plus, Microsoft giving NVIDIA bulls a new reason to celebrate. We'll take a look at the stock as it prepares to report its results. And later, new clues in the mysterious disappearance of that Chinese investment bank CEO. A very busy hour still ahead when Worldwide Exchange returns. Stay with us. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve with the help of T-Mobile for Business. Our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. When the market cascades lower like this, you have to recognize that we're going through what Wall Street's call a reset. A reset. Look, in plain English, that means almost all stocks have gone up too much since the beginning of the year, and they now have to repeal some of that move. Remember, the 2023 rally has been all about the idea that the Federal Reserve will soon be finished raising interest rates because it seemed to be winning the war against inflation. Now, it doesn't even seem to matter to people. It doesn't matter that Jay Powell, the Federal Reserve chief, never said that he was about to win. He was not about to declare victory. He made some encouraging comments about disinflation, but he also made it clear that we've got a long way to go. That was Jim Cramer making the case on Mad Money last night that yesterday's what he calls a President's Day stock sale could still have a ways to go. Kramer laying out a six-item checklist for what has to happen before all that selling at least slows down. Among them, prices for some of the high-flying tech names of 2023, they need to come back down to earth, while blue-chip stocks, they need to get a little bit of love, and key technical indicators need to be showing a much more oversold market than what we have today. Joining me now, Piper Sandler, Chief Market Technician, Craig Johnson. We just laid out my man Jim Cramer's checklist. By the way, Jim, we know you're watching. you got to come in sometime. So, Craig, we just laid out Jim's checklist right there. Agree with all of it, any of it, disagree. Give us your take. Well, I agree with a lot of what uh, Kramer laid out there in his checklist. And when I look at this market from just a technical perspective, you know, Frank, I kind of think that the top, you know, uh, we have yet to see this hop in the market top at this point in time. And when we go through and look at the technical indicators, I can lay out a case where we still have more room to go. And and from our perspective, we're seeing this downtrend reversal on all the major averages at this point in time, whether it is the Dow, whether it is the S&P, whether it is the Russell. We reverse the downtrend. Not surprised to see some backing and filling in here that Kramer's talking about, because that's what you typically see when you reverse a year-long downtrend, Frank. 
All right, so he was really keyed in there on, I think this is a softball for you, he's keyed on the technical indicators, saying they need to show a much more oversold market. Give us a sense of what you think would satisfy Kramer's requirements for this checklist, whether you agree or disagree. Yeah, well, I would agree that we do need to see this uh, uh, reset happen. And what I think you'll ultimately see happen is the market can pull back another maybe 5% or so. But what we need to see is really the on the S&P 500, the uptrend support line to remain intact off of those October lows and not to break the what was resistance at that downtrend resistance line comes in to be support. That is what you typically see from okay. a technical perspective. And you'll see the other momentum indicators get pretty well reset uh, just on that sort of pullback. All right, Craig, let's get to your thesis for 2023. In 2023, you see a hop, a drop, and a pop. Where are, where are we right now in this series of events you see for the markets? Well, Frank, I think we're still in the hop phase at this point in time. And I think the reset that Kramer talks about is just that, a shorter term reset. I think over the shorter term here, this market can move up toward the 42, 4300 range before you get a drop that comes into play. And what's going to cause the drop is a common question we've got from a lot of people. And I think that is when the Fed is finally stopped raising rates or uh, at that point in time, they've probably done a lot of the tightening that they need to do. You'll see the market probably come in. That is typically what we have seen in the past. You'll probably get a reset that will take you all the way down to maybe 3,800. And then after that, we'll probably hear that uh, from uh, that we're in a recession, okay. perhaps. And once you're in that recession, most of the damage is done. Then you get the pop, Frank. All right, before we let you go, Craig, we got to put you on the spot here. What's your price target for the S&P? What leads up to that? And can the Fed minutes coming out later today, can they change that price target or your thesis at all? I don't see the, any of the news coming out later today changing that thesis. We're looking for 46.25. We still think there's 16% upside from these levels. And we think that uh, the energy sector, we think industrials, we think financials will be some of the key drivers from it. And I would agree with Kramer that tech needs to take a break. And we will see other parts of the market broaden out and push this market higher by year end. Craig the Bull. Craig Johnson from Piper Sandler. Appreciate having you on. Thank you, Frank. All right, still ahead here on Wax, the return of an iconic menu item at McDonald's and why Heinz wants to buy back one lucky sailor, a boat, and Starbucks wants to add just a little oil to your morning latte. That doesn't actually sound that great. Your top trending stories when Wex returns. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. All right, welcome back to WEX. Watching shares of NVIDIA as the company gears up to report earnings after the bell today. This on the heels of an announcement yesterday. The chip giant is teaming up with Microsoft in a 10-year partnership to bring Activision Blizzard's catalog and Xbox games to NVIDIA's cloud gaming service, GeForce Now. The deal redirecting focus on NVIDIA's data center sales and new revenue streams from continued investment in AI, with several analysts saying NVIDIA now has the opportunity to outperform its peers, Joining me now to talk much more about this is Wedbush's Matt Bryson. Matt, great to have you on. Thanks for having me. So, Matt, I just want to talk to you about this. Huge news from Microsoft and NVIDIA. Um, does this change how you see the company's gaming business? And do you expect this deal to create any meaningful changes to guidance? Um, we're looking at the, the chip revenues 
from le- a quarter ago, and the estimates for this quarter, uh, as most analysts or the definitive uh, consensus, I believe, has a more than 50% decline in gaming revenues from a year ago. So is this a game changer for NVIDIA? I don't think it's a game changer for, for NVIDIA yet. Their, their GeForce Now technology is really impressive, but also um, there's, there's been uh, concerns around gaming remotely. Uh, it just the, the, up until very recently, uh, the, the performance wasn't uh, synonymous with what you're able to get from a PC or a console at home. So I, I think when you look forward, um, this could be really interesting for them. Uh, but I, I don't think it changes anything in the near term. Got it. Got it. So let's kind of circle back to what's given uh, AI, excuse me, AI, NVIDIA, a big run up so far this year. So we're going to show the chart right now of NVIDIA since Microsoft made that announcement that it was investing in open AI. Huge run up in this NVIDIA stock, up more than 30 percent. Um, how much of this run up, excuse me, actually more than 40 percent year to date. But how much of this run-up is due to this, the secular buzz around AI, or is there something else that investors are getting really enthusiastic about? I, I think a lot of the run-up is due to the secular buzz around AI. I think certainly with chip stocks in general, um, the, the, there has been a view that uh, we may have seen the bottom um, in terms of uh, forecast for Q1. Uh, and so to, to that extent, you've taken risk, risk out of the names. But I think AI stocks have benefited greatly, um, including NVIDIA, uh, from uh, not just Microsoft's um, investment in open AI, but uh, the success that, that ChatGPT has had in, in terms of uh, providing a look at what AI can do um, to a, a broader, for broader group of uh, okay. users. Um, more room to run on AI headlines. Let's say we get more of these AI headlines. Does that lead to NVIDIA running up even more? Or is all the AI hype already priced into this stock? So I, I think at some point that the headlines have to turn into revenues. Um, and, and I think over time, AI has a, has a huge runway ahead of it, and NVIDIA has established a secular lead in the space. Um, but I, okay. I think for the stock to move further, uh, you have to get a, a relatively positive outlook uh, in terms of their, their data center business, which is uh, largely driven by AI. All right, we're going to find that out after the bell. I want to just focus on this AI piece just a little bit more. Um, investors are always looking for best-in-class stocks. NVIDIA is seen as the market leader when it comes to chips for AI. We were just showing it a second ago. They're called accelerator chips. You're forecasting that NVIDIA gets about $3 billion in revenue from accelerator chips this quarter. Their next closest competitor, AMD, about $100 million. Big drop-off there. How big of a moat does NVIDIA have when it comes to these accelerator chips? I, I think they've done a great job in terms of creating a, a barrier to entry um, in, in the sense that um, with their CUDA uh, software, uh, they, they've effectively seeded a whole set of um, software engineers and programmers um, with their um, their algorithms and their language. Um, and so when, when you think about trying to build something on AI, um, NVIDIA in part by, by offering algorithms makes it easy. Um, when you look for software engineers who work on your AI program, it's likely that they've learned or worked with CUDA. Um, and, and so I, I, I think that they've done a great job in terms of uh, effectively uh, making it easy uh, or easier for companies to choose um, NVIDIA 
Um, I think that's that's created a, a barrier where it's not that AMD or Intel can't make a, a chip that competes um, with their data okay. center GPUs. Rather, it's uh, trying to work around uh, this 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 uh, software uh, advantage that NVIDIA okay. has is difficult. All right, something we'll have to watch. NVIDIA reports after the bell. Matt Bryson from Wedbush, thanks for being here. We appreciate it. All right, still to come here on WEX, one year on. Our, weekly, our week-long look at the war in Ukraine continues with an eye on the upheaval in the global energy markets and what a second year of conflict could mean for you. Our Steve Sedgwick is standing by in Warsaw, Poland with much more. Good morning, Steve. Yeah, morning, Frank. Look, the worst economic scenario for Europe hasn't happened despite the threat of Russian economic and especially energy blackmail over the winter we're just coming out of. Now, why hasn't it happened? Why has Europe survived? And why are prices going down quite aggressively in Europe? We'll discuss on Worldwide Exchange when we return. Here in the New York City area, we're just getting started here on WEX. Here is what's still on deck. The rate risk gets real. Stocks coming off their worst day of the year as investors now turn their attention to the Fed and fresh tea leaves on central bank policy. Futures are facing pressure. The CEO of Norfolk Southern speaking out, bowing to make whole the Ohio community at the center of a toxic derailment by one of his company's trains. His comments to CNBC coming up. And the invasion of Ukraine one year on and the global implications sanctions on Russia have had on the energy landscape. It is Wednesday, February 22nd. You're watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. And welcome back to WEX. I am Frank Collins. Get a look at futures right now. As we said before, futures under a bit of pressure right now, kind of vacillating between positive and negative fractionally all morning long. Uh, This comes after all three major indices suffered their worst day of the year with the Dow wiping out all of its gains so far for 2023. Again, as we said, futures right now kind of mixed, kind of under pressure. Turning our attention now to the bond market, the two, the five and the 10 year all trading near their highest level since November. Right now, we're looking at the 10 year at three point nine six. It's about 50 basis points higher than its low in mid-January. We also want to hit oil. We're going to dive into price action one year after Russia's invasion of Ukraine in just a moment. But right now we're looking at WTI also under pressure. WTI crude at about 75 bucks a barrel, down a percent and a half. Brent crude at about 82 bucks a barrel, down just over a percent. And in the wake of yesterday's selling, let's get a check on the early trade over there in Europe. It was all read earlier. Our Juliana Tattlebaum is standing by with our, in our London newsroom with a look at what's going on right now. Good morning, Juliana. Hey, Frank. Good morning. Well, the red, it's sticking. We've got red across the board in Europe now, about two and a half hours into the trading session. Um, and we've got FTSE 100 now down 1.15%. So the losses have accelerated here in the UK. What's really driving that index lower are the basic resources names. Heavy, uh, there's a heavy tilt toward the miners here in the UK, and we are seeing underperformance there. We're also seeing some underperformance in the Spanish market. IBEX 35 down about one and a quarter percent But FTSE MIB over in Italy, not far behind, down about 1.1% as well. A little bit more resilience in Switzerland, which tends to be a more defensive market. SMI down just half a percentage point. If we can break it down by sector, you can see the underperformance of basic resources versus the rest of the market. We're down about 2.5%. Obviously, the most cyclical or one of the most cyclical sectors in the bunch. So that's the underperformer. On the flip side, the two uh, sectors trading in the green are the more defensive ones. Food and Bev hovering right around the flat line. And then you've got media up about two-tenths of a percent. 
Frank, just uh, to remind you, we do have one auto stock in focus, Stellantis, which is proving a bright spot this morning. The company coming out with record profit and delivering returns to shareholders that have impressed their shareholders. Our, Frank, our, back over to you. Our Juliana Tattlebaum, live for our London newsroom. Always great to see you, Juliana. All right, turning our attention back stateside. Despite yesterday's losses, consumer discretionary stocks are off to a pretty strong start to the year. But that certainly was not the case back in 2022. And it may all come down just to just two stocks. Our Dom Chu is taking a look for this month's Sector Nonsense. Good morning, Dom. Very top heavy is consumer discretionary. Just like the S&P 500, it's mega cap technology, consumer discretionary. Also, some of those communication services stocks that have really kind of tilted towards the upside here in the markets overall. If you take a look at the discretionary sector, down 17% over the course of the last year versus down 7% for the S&P 500. You can see that gap starting to widen out a little bit more just in the uh, early part of this year. We're getting a little bit more of an outperformance there on a relative basis from certain parts of the broader market. But if you take a look at the reasons why, there are two stocks that drive almost all of the action within consumer discretionary. That is Amazon and Tesla. Those two stocks make up roughly 40% of the overall index for the consumer discretionary side versus 62% for everything else. Those two stocks, as go Amazon, as goes Tesla, so goes the rest of the sector overall. If you take a look at the reasons why that's an important thing to focus on right now, it is because Amazon over the course of the last year has been a huge underperformer, down about 37%, Tesla 28% over the course of the past year, leading to that 17% decline in consumer discretionary. And just to give you some context, Frank, about just how much market cap has been lost, those two stocks from their respective record highs have lost a combined one and a half trillion dollars with a T in market value since their respective highs. Just to give you an idea of just how significant they are, Frank, I'll send things back over to you. Wow. One point five trillion. Dom Chu with a look at Sectronomics. Thank you, Dom. All right. Let's get a check on some of the morning's top stories. Our Silvana Hanau is back with those. Good morning again, Silvana. Good morning again to you, Frank. Well, Amazon employees continue to express frustrations over CEO Andy Jassy's recently announced return to office mandate. Now, a group of workers forming an online group and drafting an internal petition pushing back on the mandate, which requires them to be back in the office at least three days a week starting in May. As of last night, the group has around 16,000 members with about 5,000 employees signing the petition. The CEO of Norfolk Southern is vowing continued support to East Palestine, Ohio, in the aftermath of the train derailment and the toxic chemical release. Speaking with CNBC's Morgan Brennan yesterday, Alan Shaw said he thinks it's safe for families to return to the community, saying the company will do what it takes to make the situation right. My commitment to the citizens of East Palestine is the same as my commitment to the employees of Norfolk Southern. We're going to do what's right. And we're going to be here today. We're going to be here tomorrow. We're going to be here a year from now. We're going to be here five years from now. And we're going to do what's right for this community and help this community get back on its feet and help this community thrive. And this is your promise that you will be here on the grounds to ensure that happens. Yes. Amid Shaw's comments, Pennsylvania Governor Josh Shapiro says his office has made a criminal referral against Norfolk Southern to the state attorney general, claiming the company allegedly gave officials inaccurate information and refused to explore or offer alternative courses of action 
following the derailment and Elon Musk's pay package potentially at risk. Lawyers for Tesla shareholders are urging a judge to invalidate the 2018 plan awarded by Tesla's board to Musk, potentially worth more than $55 billion. They say the package was dictated by Musk and the product the product of sham negotiations with directors who were not independent of him and that shareholders were given misleading and incomplete disclosures. The judge has ordered another round of legal briefings, Frank. Yeah, Elon Musk can't seem to stay out of court, so <laughs> No, not at all. Our Savannah now, thank you for those headlines. Sure <clears throat> Turn our attention to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, that country in the world marking one year since Vladimir Putin launched his offensive and the war has led to major shifts in the global energy landscape as Russia, the world's leading natural gas producer and a major oil exporter, continues to face sanctions from the West. Our Steve Sedgwick is on the ground in Warsaw, Poland, and has followed the energy ramifications very closely over this last year. Good morning, Steve. Yeah, great to see you, Frank. Well, look, I mean, it's absolutely fascinating. What is the oil price as we speak? The global benchmark of Brent is trading just under 82 bucks uh, as we speak at the moment. It's not 92 bucks. It's not 100 bucks. It's not 120 bucks plus that it was at its peak just after the war started. Uh, and this was the great weapon, the dog that didn't bark as far as the Russians were concerned, the thing that was going to bring Europe to the table and stop it supporting Ukraine over the long term. The stranglehold that the Russians had on European energy, they were by far the biggest gas importer uh, to the EU. They were by far one of the biggest ga oil importers. And yet, despite that peak of over $120 a barrel, suddenly we're over 40 bucks lower than that. And that is in part because Europe learned to live without Russian products. It learned to conserve, it learned to store. And guess what? There were plenty of other producers out there who were ma managing to sell to the European Union. The Americans have sold a vast amount more. more. The Kazakhstanis, the Western Africans, and of course, uh, our dear friends over in OPEC as well. It's not just the case with oil. Do you remember the energy crisis we were going to have in Europe this winter? The shortages, the blackouts, the businesses not being able to work. Well, guess what? Those wholesale gas prices that were huge at one point, they peaked uh, at, what, I don't know, 320 euros uh, per megawatt hour in August 2022 as we were concerned about going into the Northern Hemisphere winter. Well, guess where they're trading now? They're around about $50 per megawatt hour. That is a fraction uh, of their peak. And again, Europe learned to conserve we had warmer weather. That helped us. The fact that the Chinese had a lockdown as well, which meant there wasn't more demand coming from elsewhere as well. But guess what as well? They conserved and they stored more and they got more from the Norwegians and others as well. That is how Europe has coped. And I'm afraid it's the big weapon that Putin thought he had on Europe that just didn't happen. I mean, it's a big surprise and a little bit of luck, just to be honest, as you mentioned, the warmer weather helped this whole situation. So I have to ask you, any ramifications of this recent oil drop for OPEC and OPEC Plus? I, I think so. And look, I spent a lot of time over in Vienna following uh, the OPEC grouping as well. And of course, it became OPEC plus and it got reinvented with the Russians. But here's the problem for the Russians as well. Who do they sell product to if they can't sell it to the Europeans, if they can't sell it to the G7, if they can't sell it to the United States? Uh, well, they chase the same markets that OPEC has traditionally gone for. Who's that? That's China. That's growing Asia. That's the emerging markets. That's India. But the problem for the Russians 
emissions is. And this is the problem for their economy, even though it's not fallen anywhere near as much as people thought it would as well. They're having to sell at a huge discount. Not only is this the G7 60 bucks price cap, but actually they're selling it, according to some of the great experts out there, like Dan Jurgen, who we speak to on this channel as well. They're selling it at over $30 discount. Now, if we're trading 82 bucks on Brent now, that means somewhere in the region of $50 per barrel plus in order to get their barrels to the same markets that their dear friends at OPEC are trying to uh, sell to as well. Very, very difficult. And I imagine the next few meetings at OPEC could be quite interesting as they all try and sell the same barrel to the same customers, Frank. Steve Sedgwick, live in Poland. Thank you for that breakdown. Great stuff as always, Steve. Great to see you. All right, let's continue the discussion now about how the energy sector looks one year after Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Um, Amrita Sen is co-founder and head of research and energy aspects. Amrita, great to have you here. Thank you. So we just kind of broke everything down with Steve. Um, you know, big run up when it came to oil last year for Brent and WTI hit about 130 a barrel at its high very briefly. Now, well below that, even right now, both of them about six bucks a barrel below their year high in 2023. What's the next move for the oil market? I mean, look, uh, as Steve said as well, I think the governments have played a big role in uh, getting oil prices down. I think he didn't mention uh, the SPR, but I think that was the single biggest supply addition to the global market last year. Uh, U.S.-led strategic petroleum reserves are pretty much emptied across many, many countries of very, very low levels. We had 220 million barrels of that come out of government caverns into commercial stock in the anticipation that we will be losing Russian barrels. We are you know, we haven't really lost a lot of Russian barrels. It's been a little bit. Uh, we do anticipate now they are going to struggle to place their products in particular. So there will be some reduction. And Russia has also come out and talked about 500,000 barrels per day of cuts for March. Uh, there will be some reductions in supplies going forward. But the combination of no more, at least emergency okay. uh, SPR releases from governments and China reopening. We are expecting over a million barrels per day year on year increase in Chinese demand. That should tighten markets up, but probably more in the second half of the year than in the first half. OK, so we're not out of the woods just yet. One thing I want to touch on, I'd love you to explain it to our viewers. The U.S. is a net oil exporter. However, when it comes to the northeast part of the country, we actually import oil to the colonial pipeline. A lot of headlines about that just a year ago. But explain why we have to import when we're a net exporter. It's to do with uh, the regional, I guess, uh, infrastructure issues uh, with the U.S. Uh, the East Coast has always been a net importer. And even though the Gulf Coast has a lot of refining capacity, it just isn't able to send everything that the East Coast uh, requires. It does send a lot of products on the pipeline, but the rest of it has to be met with waterborne imports, which tends to be Canada and Europe. All right, which is also going to increase the pressure on prices potentially here in the U.S. and raise not only oil prices, but potentially gas prices. So I want to ask you, what's your yes, price? Yes, and I think that's a, yeah. Oh, please, go ahead, Amrita. No, no, go on, sorry. No, no, please, go No, no, ahead. I was just going to say to you that I think that's a very, I think that's a very important point that you bring up because we're talking about oil prices over here, but at the end of the day, especially in the summer, what will hurt us is what price we are paying at the pump. And I think the biggest issue right now with Russia sailing all its crude and products, by the way, to the east, is that we are really, really adding to shipping costs. So in the past, Europe and Russia, for instance, would send components and, and other products to the uh, U.S. East Coast. Now, those Russian products have to go to the Middle East and India. Um, then get relabeled or reclassified and sent back all the way to the U.S. and to Europe. So effectively, we are 
we as consumers will have to pay for the inefficiencies we are creating in trade, and that's pretty much a structural issue going forward. Yeah, really interesting supply chain issue there. And Rita, we've got to get going before we go. Can you give us your price target for WTI and for Brent? And is that price target for year end at some point in the middle of the year? Just give us a sense. Sure. Uh, we're expecting prices to stay below $100 uh, for now, but in the second half of the year, uh, climb above $110 for WTI and average about 115 for Brent. Our Amrita Sen, great to have you on. Thank you for the insight, especially the explanation of some of the inefficiency when it comes to oil importing to the U.S. Thank you again. All right, coming up here on WEX, the Supreme Court takes on big tech as justices examine a nearly 30-year-old law that could reshape the digital world as we know it and many of the key players in it. But first, as we head to break, some of your top trending stories. We start with Starbucks launching olive oil-infused coffee in roughly two dozen stores in Italy today. CEO Howard Schultz saying the combo creates a velvety and buttery mouthfeel that enhances the coffee's flavor. It's expected to debut in Southern California this spring. He actually teased this during the last earnings. He talked about what he he discovered in Italy. Very, Very interesting. All right, Heinz is searching for a sailor who survived nearly a month at sea on nothing but ketchup and rainwater. The company calling for the public's help in an Instagram post saying they want to find this guy and buy him a new boat to celebrate his safe return. I'm going to assume he's going to get some ketchup, too. And it's a good day for a shamrock shake. The mint-flavored treat is back on the McDonald's menu. The shake will be available at participating restaurants nationwide for a limited time while supplies last. How many times have you heard that in life? Worldwide Exchange, back in a moment. All right, welcome back to WEX. The Supreme Court set to resume hearings around two key cases tackling big tech and questions around content moderation. Today, it's Twitter being put under the microscope. This after the high court looked at Google and whether tech companies are liable for the material posted on their platforms. Eamon Javers joins us now with more on today's proceedings and the potential ramifications around these lawsuits. Good morning, Eamon. Yeah, good morning, Frank. The question the question before the Supreme Court on Monday was just how much legal protection do Internet companies have under a 1996 law that shielded them from liability when they allow third parties to post content on their platforms? And right now, Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act protects the companies, but lawyers for the family of a young American woman who was killed by the Islamic State in a 2015 terrorist attack in Paris, they argue that YouTube should bear some liability for her death because ISIS videos on YouTube spread violent ideology. Now, because Section 230 is in place now, they can't argue that YouTube is liable because it hosted the videos. Instead, they're arguing that YouTube's algorithm promoted the videos to more and more people, and they say the algorithm is a new creation and not protected third-party content under Section 230. Now, on Monday, justices seemed skeptical of that argument, wondering just how many lawsuits that interpretation would unleash and just what the impact on the entire digital economy could be. A lawyer for YouTube parent company Google argued that publishing requires some system of organizing the enormous amounts of content on the Internet, so YouTube's algorithms should be protected under Section 232. Now, a decision in the case is not expected until later this year. The court's going to hear a related case today, Frank. It's called Twitter versus Tamina, and it raises the question of whether Twitter can be held accountable for, quote, aiding and abetting terrorism under the Anti-Terrorism Act because it didn't aggressively enough uh, push to pull ISIS content 
off the site. <clears throat> now, those arguments are scheduled for 10 a.m. this morning. I was there yesterday, Frank, and I'll be there again at the Supreme Court today. Back over to you. Yeah, two really interesting cases, Ammon. So I, I got to ask you, what would the tech industry look like if these cases were successful? Well, that's the big question here. And, and what we it's just uncharted territory. We really don't know. I mean, Section 230 has sort of been baked into the Internet uh, since the Internet really got started as a massive business. What we don't know is what would happen if you opened up the companies to that kind of liability. We saw Justice Elena Kagan yesterday concerned about just a, a tsunami or an ocean of lawsuits that would face these companies. Uh, we saw Justice Brett Kavanaugh wonder uh, if this would break the digital economy altogether and whether the Supreme Court is really the right body to be hearing that. So you were hearing a lot of skepticism from these justices yesterday, Frank, as they looked at the scale of the change they're being asked to make here. That might give you an indication that they're not going to make it, but we, we won't know until the Supreme Court wraps up its session. All right, Eamon Javers down there in D.C. on SCOTUS Watch. Thanks a lot, Eamon. Good to see you. All right, as we head to break, during February, we're celebrating Black Heritage with some of our CNBC teammates, contributors, and business leaders. Here is Veritas Financial founder and managing partner and CNBC contributor, Greg Branch. Every Black History Month, we're reminded of the countless generations of African Americans who suffered in situations with little choice and little opportunity so that we'd all enjoy the choices we have today. And while the fight for equal opportunity and access is far from over, we can't let that hamper us in terms of making the choices we do have available today. Celebrate the good ones, learn from the bad ones, seek out mentors and advisors who collaborate on the difficult ones. But whatever we do, we can't let the choices pass us by. We can't let them be decided for us. Much sacrifice went into allowing for many of us to direct our own destinies. And we can honor that sacrifice by actively owning the choices. All right, welcome back to WEX. Time now for your WEX wrap-up. Six stories that you may have missed as we close in on the 6 o'clock hour. We begin with new details on the mysterious disappearance of that Chinese investment banker. Reports this morning, China Renaissance CEO Bao Fan was working to move some of, his, some of his fortune to Singapore from China in the months leading to his disappearance. He remains unreachable. Coinbase saying the crypto market has improved so far in the first quarter, but the rest of the year remains cloudy. The company's fourth quarter results topping estimates. Shares of Palo Alto Networks popping after results topped analyst expectations. The software company also offering strong guidance for its fiscal third quarter on continued strong security architecture demand. Mortgage rates hitting a fresh high for the year yesterday, inching towards 7%, though they are still below the 7.37% mark reached back in October. Citigroup boosting CEO Jane Frazier's pay to $24.5 million last year, nearly 9% jump, making her the only big U.S. bank CEO to receive a pay bump amid a challenging year for the industry. And Apple TV Plus may be winning uh, Pac-12 football, according to the New York Post. The platform already streams live baseball games on Friday and is about to start a 10-year, $2.5 billion agreement with Major League Soccer. All right, gearing up for the trading day ahead, we're watching out for mortgage application figures at noon as well as results from Baidu, eBay, Etsy, and NVIDIA. Investors also awaiting the release of the minutes from the latest FOMC meeting at 2 p.m. Eastern, followed by a speech by New York Fed President John Williams at 5.30. Ahead of that, St. Louis Fed President James Bullard speaks exclusively with CNBC. That's coming up on Squawk Box at 7 a.m. Eastern. 
We're going to take a look at the futures right now. We've been talking to you all morning about the futures, kind of vacillating between negative and positive, a bit under pressure all morning. We're seeing a bit of a turnaround right now. Um, fractionally higher right now, we're seeing uh, the S&P, the Dow, and the NASDAQ, all three of them. The Dow looking like it could open up just, just fractionally higher at this point. I also want to take a look at Treasuries. We've been talking about the run-up as we saw the sell-off when it came to equities. Right now, the 10-year note at 3.955. It's about 50 basis points from its mid-January low, something to watch. And, of course, we're still seeing that inverted yield curve, the 2, the 5, and the 10-year, all trading near multi-year highs. And, of course, oil we're watching as well. We've been talking about it all day with the Ukraine anniversary coming up. Uh, WTI and Brent both under a bit of pressure in the early trade, down about a percent. Natural gas down almost 5%. And a look at crypto very quickly. We're seeing Bitcoin still below that 25,000 mark, down almost a percent and a half. Ether down a percent and a half right now. Continue to watch the crypto market. Solana, probably the hardest, oh, definitely the hardest hit right now, I should say, down about six and a half percent right now. And a look at mega cap tech. Meta platforms down about a quarter of a percent right now. But Apple, Amazon, and Alphabet all up in the pre-market. Alphabet only up fractionally, however. And a look at Europe in the pre-market right now. Um, paying attention, we saw red right across the board earlier when our Juliana Tattlebaum kind of broke down the action over there. We're seeing a similar picture right now with the German DAX down uh, just about three quarters of a percent. But the FTSE uh, down a percent and the Spanish IBEX down more than a percent. And a quick look at Asian markets as well right now. We're seeing red right across the board there with the Nikkei uh, down almost a percent and a half. But the Kospi, the hardest hit, down more than a percent and a half. The Hang Seng down about a half a percent right now. And a quick look at metals right now. Gold up, uh, well, pretty much flat, actually. Up fractionally. You see a little bit of green there, but really not up right now. Silver down about a quarter of a percent. Palladium, one of the hardest hit, one of those tech commodities that we often talk about, down almost 2%. All right, one more look at the futures right now. Again, as we said, futures have been mixed under pressure all morning, kind of vacillating between positive and negative. Now kind of popping just slightly to the, the green here. We're seeing the Dow could open up fractionally higher right now. Uh, if the market's open right now. But, of course, we have a ways to go. And before we get to the market open, of course, we have Squawk Box coming up. Thanks for watching Worldwide Exchange. Thanks for being here. You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern only on CNBC. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.